0: From Bottom Line Technologies. A high proportion of adults pay at least one bill each month via direct debit, and still many people remain unsure of what a direct debit is or when it should be used. As an authorised method of allowing someone to collect payments from your bank account, it's important to understand the facts around direct debits for consumers and also how businesses use them. I'm Fiona McCarran, host of This Payments Podcast. This episode is part one of a series of three podcasts on direct debits. In this episode, we'll be focusing on an introduction and overview of direct debits to give you a clearer understanding of how they work, how they're set up and the problems they can solve. With me today is Andrew Strickland, who delivers BAX accredited direct debit training and has worked with direct debits for 10 years. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Fiona. Could you tell us a little bit about the history of the direct debit scheme?
1: Okay, so uh, back in the 1960s, we had a situation where if I wanted to pay somebody in another part of the country, pretty much the only way that I would be able to do that would be by sending them a cheque or a postal order. So everything was uh, very paper-based. Of course, back then, we didn't have uh, the computers and systems that we had today. But uh, as computers became uh, more in common use, The banks, particularly the clearing banks, recognized that things would change. So in 1968, they created something called the Interbank Computer Bureau, which later became the Banker's Automated Clearing Service, which is where we get the name BACS from. And they introduced initially direct credit, and then direct debit was introduced in 1970. So direct debit is an electronic method of moving money, and it's nearly 50 years old.
0: So, Andrew, can you tell us a bit more of how does it work?
1: Well, unlike a standing order, which somebody sets up directly with their own bank and where the money is pushed through from their bank account to whoever they want to pay, Direct Debit works the other way around. So a Direct Debit service user uh, gets the authority from the payer To access their bank account and normally this would be done by them signing something called a direct debit instruction and then what the service user does is they set that up on the payers bank account and that process is called lodgement Uh, there are two methods of lodging a direct debit instruction on someone's bank account the standard method which is how the scheme was originally devised would involve the service user Sending the direct debit instruction through the post to the payers bank and the bank would make a note of the reference on the direct debit instruction and that's it then the the facility is then set up and the service user is then able to collect money from that account against that reference number. There is now a process where we can do that electronically, the the lodgement process. That's called ALDIS, the Automated Direct Debit Instruction Service. So in that case, service users that are ALDIS service users, rather than physically posting the direct debit instruction to the bank, uh, they simply transmit a data file through the back system. So effectively, we have two processes, lodgement of the direct debit instruction, which is simply the act of setting it up on the account. And then every single time that a service user wants to uh, collect money from that particular bank account under that reference, they send off a file through the system to collect the money. So we have lodgement and collection. And the collection process, as I've just said, is done through a system, uh, through the back system, which involves transmitting data files Uh, ...and we'll talk a little bit more about that process in a minute.
0: So Andrew, why does it take three days?
1: Well essentially it's because of overnight processes. Remember that the scheme was originally devised nearly 50 years ago. So uh, there was a situation where the files or the information had to get to BACS... ...and then they had to get it onto the paying bank or payment services provider... And then it had to be applied to the account. So the way that it worked was, and still does, is that on day one, the information is input into the system. That's called input day. On day two, it's processed. So BACS will transmit the file to the bank at the other end of the process. And then on day three, this is called entry day or due date. Uh, the action completes on the bank account. We should also just make uh, clear that these are working days. So if I transmit a file on Friday, for instance, that's day one of the cycle, the earliest that it can be processed is day two, and therefore the earliest that the action can complete would be day three on the Tuesday. We can also extend that process over a longer period of time I could send a file if I was sending a file, for instance, on a Wednesday. I could instruct BACS to process it on the following Monday. So, day two of the cycle, cycle wouldn't actually be uh, until a later point in time, but then the action would still complete one day after the processing day.
0: Okay, so how easy is it, or how long does it take, for an organisation to set up a new direct debits?
1: Well, that depends on a number of things to start with it will depend on how they receive the payer's authority so we just discussed the fact that uh, normally a paper direct debit instruction will be completed well obviously they have to wait for that to come back to them and that will also uh, depend on what method of lodgement they use are they a standard service user who has to post that direct debit instruction to the payer's bank or payment services provider. If they are, then the rules say that they have to allow 10 working days from dispatch of the direct debit instruction before they start making any collections. If they're an Aldis service user, then they're transmitting that direct debit instruction electronically through BACS We've just discussed that that takes a minimum of three working days, but there is a a rule within the scheme that says that an Aldis service user is not actually permitted to collect any money for a further two working days after lodgement. So the lodgement cycle uh, is actually a five day cycle as a minimum before you can start collecting any money. There are also implications of advance notice. Now, advance notice is something that the service user has to give to the payer. Although they're being given access to a payer's bank account, uh, the guarantee says that they're required to notify the payer about collections that are going to be debited from that account. And the default period for that is 10 working days, although that can be changed uh, with the approval of a service user's bank. Just one other thing uh, that I didn't mention is that those situations occur where the authority is given on a paper direct debit instruction. There is also something called paperless direct debit, which is where a service user has the ability to sign somebody up, perhaps over the telephone or over the internet or with an electronic signature. And uh, and obviously that also can shorten the timescales are involved because you're not having to wait for the paper direct debit instruction to be received from the payer.
0: What contractual rights do companies have to set up a direct debit on my behalf?
1: Now, this is an interesting subject, really, because the fact is that a company can only set a direct debit instruction up on your bank account if they have your authority. And, of course, you control who has access to your bank account. We should just make it clear that Direct debit is just a method of moving money between two bank accounts. It is totally separate from any contract that might exist between a company and their customer that says that somebody owes them some money. One is a a contract and the other one is an authority to debit a bank account. In fact, if you think about it, the payer, i.e. the person whose bank account is being debited, might not even be the debtor. I often use as an example here, if if I was paying my mother's council tax, she's the person that legally owes the money, but it's my bank account that's being debited. So we can see that the contract is with one person, but the direct debit instruction is with another. Even if they are the same person, I must have control over who can access my bank account. And if I choose to cancel the direct debit instruction, which I can do simply by notifying my bank, then effectively what I've done is I've taken away my authority and a company must not set it up again without my authority, which would involve them getting a new direct debit instruction. So you can see that actually, from a contract point of view, we have to make sure we understand that there is a difference between a contract that says someone owes some money and a direct debit instruction, which is an authority to debit an account.
0: And how does the direct debit guarantee protect
1: customers? Well, essentially, there are three safeguards to the direct debit guarantee. We've just mentioned one of them, the right to cancel, because direct debit is just a method of payment. So I can choose whether to pay you by direct debit or not. I might owe you some money, but it's up to me to decide how I want to pay. And uh, remember that the direct debit instruction is separate from any contract that might exist. So I have the right to cancel the direct debit instruction, but that doesn't alter the fact that I might owe you the money. Then we have something we mentioned a moment ago, advance notice. It's all well and good, somebody signing a direct debit instruction that gives a company access to their bank account, but the rules are quite clear that under the guarantee, the payer is entitled to receive advance notice of collections. You see, I don't expect someone to take money from my bank account without telling me. That would be a bit like going down my wallet without telling me. It's exactly the same scenario. So the rules say that I have to be advised as to how much is going to be debited, when it's going to be debited, how often it's going to be debited, and the reference number and information that will appear on my bank statement. So that's the second safeguard of the guarantee. The third is the right to an immediate refund where there has been an error. Now, the payer goes to his bank to get the refund, and the reason for that is because it's the bank that offer the guarantee. Because a service user has access to my bank account, and they're in control of how much is debited from my bank account, there's nothing to say that they don't make an error, simply putting a decimal point in the wrong place would result in me being debited 10 times the amount that they're supposed to. So I've got to be able to get that money back immediately without any major fuss about it. So the guarantee says I can simply go to my bank and obtain that refund.
0: And what obligations do businesses have towards the
1: guarantee? Well, let's just go back over those three things again. Firstly, the the right to cancel. Well, the fact is, the service user can't actually stop me cancelling the direct debit instruction. To start with, I could simply walk into my bank and have a conversation with them and they will uh, accept my instruction to cancel the DDI. These days, we don't even need to do that because most of us have telephone banking or online banking we might even have an app on our smartphone where we can just press a button to cancel a direct debit instruction and when i do that uh, i've taken away my authority and therefore if a company wants to set up the direct debit instruction again they would need to obtain a new authority from me so that would be their obligation in that situation We also mentioned that the the service user has an obligation to give advance notice. That is a requirement of the scheme. Within the rules, and the service user guide and rules to the direct debit scheme is 171 pages long, there is a whole section about advance notice and there are certain mandatory things that have to be included on the advance notice and the service user also has to adhere to certain timescales. In other words, they're not allowed to collect money within a certain period of time. When a service user joins the scheme, they agree to abide by those rules and if they don't, they can be removed from the scheme. Now, With regards to the right to an immediate refund, The interesting thing is that if you actually read the guarantee on the bottom of a direct debit instruction, you'll see that it's the bank or the payment service provider who actually offer the guarantee. And therefore, it's the bank or the payment services provider that provide the refund. And the service user has no control over that. I go into my bank and I tell them that there's an error that has been made and they will refund me that money. But of course, my bank or payment services provider is then out of pocket. So what they do, having refunded me, they then take the money back from the service user. Now, the mechanism for this is called an indemnity claim. And the reason for that is that when a company joins the direct debit scheme, they indemnify, they sign a legal document that confirms that where a bank refunds the payer that they will reimburse the bank. Uh, Now, bearing in mind that this is done largely on the say-so of the payer, uh, there have been some concerns about uh, the fact that you could end up with spurious or fraudulent refunds where somebody simply lies to their bank. That is a possibility, although there have been recent processes introduced to guard against that sort of scenario.
0: Andrew, what are the problems organisations have that can be solved by collecting direct debits?
1: Well, there are a number of benefits associated with direct debit, both for service users and for payers, which we'll we'll probably deal with in a later episode. We could probably sum it up by saying that uh, the direct debit scheme gives companies a degree of control. For instance, it gives them control over the timing of collections not having to wait for somebody to send you money, either through the post or uh, through their bank initiating a standing order payment. It also gives the service user control over how much you receive. That might have an impact on any outstanding debt that a company has. And it can also be relatively cheap when compared to other methods of collection especially if we're dealing with large volumes of collections or collections that are of high value one of the things that we should just mention is that so uh, whilst the rules may seem complicated and there are 171 pages of rules there are systems that are available to manage the processes so a lot of this can be automated and that is also another great benefit It's worth bearing in mind that there are upwards of 50,000 service users already doing it, so the benefits of direct debit must be worthwhile.
0: Andrew, thank you very much for that really useful insight into direct debits, what they are, how they work, and how they can help your business. Our next episode in this direct debit three-part series will be focused on direct debit for businesses. If you're already collecting direct debits but have questions about or would like to know more about compliance, or if you're even interested in best practice, please don't miss this opportunity to find out more. In the meantime, if you'd like to visit bax.co.uk, you'll be able to find a list of accredited training providers and additional resources on direct debits. podcast from bottom line technologies.